0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and
1: welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, we have a Courthouse Steps webinar on the oral argument in Merrill v. Millie which was argued just a few hours ago in the Supreme Court. My name is Ryan Lacing, I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have David Warrington and Professor Michael Domino, who I'll introduce very briefly. David Warrington is a partner at the Dillon Law Group, where he is a leader of the firm's political law practice. And Mike Domino is a professor of law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will hand over a Q&A as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today.
2: David, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, earlier today, uh, the case of Merrill v. Milligan was argued uh, at 10 o'clock it was uh, a, a longer argument because there were a number of parties and and a longer uh time was granted for the arguments uh, but the argument the case came about because after the 2020 s- census Alabama created a redistricting plan uh, for seven of its seats in the U.S House of Representatives uh, this plan uh, included one uh majority minority district and after the plan was uh, announced uh several uh Minority group organizations challenged the plan, uh, and and argued that there should have been more than just one majority minority district. Um, the challengers alleged that the map effectively minimized uh, the districts, the number of districts in which Black voters could elect their chosen candidates, and therefore it violated Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, which bans racial discrimination in voting policies. Uh, a three-judge a, a three panel of the district court agreed with the challengers and, that the MAP likely voted, uh, violated Section 2 of the VRA and granted a preliminary injunction. Uh, the, the, the petitioners in the case uh, petitioned for a stay in, in the case. There was a hotly debated uh, dissents uh, and, and opinions regarding that, but today it was argument on the merits focused on whether or not uh, Alabama's um, uh, redistricting plan uh, violated Section Two. So, at issue in the case was whether, uh, under traditional districting principles, um, you could have come up with a uh, more than one minority majority district uh, in the Alabama um, redistricting. Uh, The plan that was put forth by Alabama only had one. Uh, And in the course of the trial, or the course, of developing the case, the evidence is below uh, the parties used a number of experts uh, and and used a a lot of computer simulations uh, to come up with ways to show that there were multiple ways to do doing this. And the arguments here between the parties were really uh, focused on. A couple of uh nuances in the Voting Rights Act, particularly whether the, the Voting Rights Act required the consideration of race, or whether it, uh whether it required uh treating race as uh, sort of a uh an Uber factor in determining compliance with the Voting Rights Act. The the uh the respondents, who were the the challengers in the in the case below, uh argued that. Um, what you needed to show was that, uh, what Alabama needed to show was that there was no other possible way to, to, to draw any districts, um, without a, uh, without a majority minority, uh, composition, uh, that sort of, uh, that sort of turned things on its head, uh, according to what Alabama argued and the justices had, a, you could see where they were drawing their lines. Um, the first, Uh, Justice Jackson, who is her second day on the court, uh, really took an active role in questioning Alabama uh, on uh, what basis uh, they had to challenge to to support uh, their single majority minority district. Uh, And basically, she went back to the history of the 14th and 15th Amendment uh, and said that um, I think the way she phrased it, the 14th and 15th Amendment were adopted in a race conscious way. Um, and that that meant that under the Voting Rights Act and under the test that's used, uh, the precondition test, the Jingles test, uh, that you you can consider race and you have to consider race. Um, that's really kind of a different um it's 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 a it's a different and new argument. Um I think the cases uh, that uh, came after Jingles really focused on traditional districting principles such as compactness, regularity of the lines, uh communities of interest, things like that and if race is a component of that, uh it cannot predominate. And if it predominates, uh then it's a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And what Justice Jackson seemed to be saying is that you have to give race uh sort of a superior consideration in the analysis because historically the 14th and 15th amendments were adopted in a race-based way to give a constitutional grounding for later laws such as the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Now, uh I think the counterargument to that uh, and I'm and I'm not sure it, it came out very clear Um, but, uh, the counter argument was that, you know, while the 14th and 15th amendments prohibit, um, the deprivation of rights based on race, uh, it is not a command or a license to use race. Um, it kind of flips the understanding of the 14th and 15th amendment on, on its head, uh, which is what they would do with the, this, the current test in jingles, uh, if you took her viewpoints. Um Justice uh, Sotomayor sort of followed that line of arguing uh, to some degree. Um, and that's, you know, the main challenge to the argument of the petitioners here. Um, we didn't get a lot of questions. I don't think we got any questions from Justice Gorsuch. Um, Justice Alito really carried um, uh, the torch in uh, challenging the uh, approach that Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor and to some extent Justice Kagan were advocating um, uh, with with their arguments. Um, I think the Solicitor General of Alabama uh, did, a, did a good job finally coming back around and wrapping things up and and making the point uh, that, you know, it cannot be under the present test uh, that the jingles requires consideration of race as a predominant factor in fact that's inconsistent with the, the the case law that's at issue um there was a little bit of back and forth on that and i think the ultimate question that uh is posed to the court um and this is where justice roberts i think is is has the middle ground here is whether uh the, the whether they get rid of the jingles test uh, which i don't think is you know, even even possible that you know that that they would do. But they specifically asked uh the Solicitor General of Alabama, do you want to get rid of jingles or do you want to modify it? And I think the argument was when he finally got around to that and clarifying that it's a modification, not really a modification, but a clarification of what jingles is asking for, the test that jingles requires. And um I think that's Going to be where the the decision comes out, Uh, even though you can't read everything into oral argument. I think um, you may get enough votes to clarify jingles um, rather than do either what Justice Jackson wants, which is import race as more of a um, presupposition uh, or precondition to any analysis uh, or uh, certainly uh, because Alabama's not asking for uh, either rewriting or modifying jingles.
0: Thanks, David. I, I think it might be helpful for me to provide a little bit of a background on the existing law, especially for the benefit of people who aren't involved in voting rights cases on a daily basis, may not remember much of the, the, the basic doctrine. The This case involves a conflict between two different lines of jurisprudence that the court has developed over the last 35 years or so. Uh, one of them is on step uh, section two of the Voting Rights Act, and the other one is directly under the Equal Protection Clause. The Equal Protection Clause racial gerrymandering cases, starting with Shaw versus Reno, established that it's unconstitutional for a state to draw district lines with, as David said, the predominant consideration of race. Now, the Supreme Court has never said, uh, in fact, it has expressly disclaimed this idea. It has never said that it's unconstitutional to consider race in drawing district lines. Instead, the court has said that race can't predominate. So race can't be the overwhelming factor that is considered. You can consider race as long as you consider it in a context with a bunch of other kinds of factors. It's similar to the affirmative action doctrine that the court will reconsider starting next month, uh, where you can consider race in college admissions and things, but not by itself, only in conjunction with other factors as well. So that's the racial gerrymandering rule. You cannot have race predominate in the drawing of district lines. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, on the other hand, seems to require, or at least as uh, Alabama is arguing that this isn't the proper way to interpret Section 2, but at least as it has been, uh, to my knowledge, understood to this point, uh, Section 2 has required the uh, district line drawers. To consider race to ensure that uh that racial minorities have an equal opportunity to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. So it's section two of the Voting Rights Act requires, requires that minorities have that equal opportunity whenever a state is involved in uh standards, practices, or procedures with respect to voting, including the drawing of district lines. So what the, the jingles test that David referred to uh, tries to give some practical guidance to explain when you're going to have a viable claim under section two and when you're not. And what jingles says, uh, it, apparently jingles or gingles, depending on, on who you ask, uh, Justice Alito um, used the second formulation and um, some of the other justices used, used jingles. Um, uh, that test, Thornburg versus Jingles says that for a plaintiff to make out a successful section two claim, the plaintiff must demonstrate that the minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district, and there must be racially polarized voting. That is that minority group must vote in a sufficiently unified way so that they have a candidate of choice and the majority, what the court refers to as the white majority must vote sufficiently as a block to enable it usually to defeat the candidate of choice of the minority. And if all three of those conditions are satisfied, then the court will ask, uh, considering the totality of the circumstances, does the racial group have this equal opportunity compared to other members of the electorate? to participate in the political process and to elect candidates of choice. And the uh, Supreme Court has said, even though minority groups don't have a right under the Voting Rights Act to elect a proportionate number of its members uh, into legislative office, when we consider the totality of the circumstances, we will make a judgment as to uh, about whether the a number of districts controlled by the minority group is roughly proportionate to that minority group's share of the population. And so in Alabama where blacks constitute roughly 27% of the electorate, the claim in this case and the finding of the district court below was that uh, two seats out of seven would yield a roughly proportionate a number of legislative seats compared to the share of the population that blacks have in Alabama, whereas the current one seat out of seven would not be a roughly proportionate share. So, the the district court in finding that blacks were sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district and that there was racially polarized voting and that the second majority-minority district would be necessary to bring blacks up to a uh, roughly proportionate share of legislative seats, congressional seats, uh, found there to be a Section 2 violation. Now, the essential conflict between those two different lines is uh, is what's brought out by Alabama's submission here. Alabama says, in order to to say that blacks are sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single member district, you have to draw districts with the predominant consideration of race. That if you consider other kinds of factors in a, a more substantial way, particularly if you want to retain the core of existing districts. If you want to tinker with district lines as little as possible, you're not going to be able to draw a district that has a plan that has two majority-minority districts. The only way you do that is by prioritizing race, But that effort conflicts with the racial gerrymandering cases that says, what you can't do under the 14th Amendment is draw district lines with uh, a predominant consideration of race. So it's that kind of conflict that's involved in the case. And I think that that's what Chief Justice Roberts was referring to in his dissent from the stay application uh, back in the summer, where he said the district court appears to have applied jingles correctly as it exists now. But the doctrine as it is, is causing substantial problems, in part because we have this kind of of collision course that section two seems to require the consideration of race, even as in a case like this, where race really has to be important to overwhelm other kinds of considerations to get a second district that just barely uh, is a majority minority district. And yet we have this doctrine on the other side that says, uh, whatever you do, whatever you consider, don't make race the predominant factor. Um, So uh, David, back to you with with, uh, any more thoughts you have about about that yeah Mike that that, thing, I mean that, that's on. an
2: excellent point that you raised at the end because I think if you look at where if you go back and you look at the dissents from the uh the stay and also the stay and the arguments were that were made at that point, I think you can see where the courts kind of lining up and, and Roberts Roberts is the pivotal pivotal vote as he as I think he often is. Um but what The one of the last questions, and I I think it was on rebuttal when they clarified what Alabama was looking for, were they looking for a rewrite of jingles or were they looking for a clarification? And the solicitor general said a clarification. And that goes directly to what to what Justice Roberts had said was the problem that he thought, even though he dissented from from the state, he, he recognized that some of the interpretation of ging- jingles i'm going to say gingles um uh at the district court levels uh has has been confusing um and even justice kavanaugh had said that before that the the the, the case law and some of the stuff is 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 confusing um and i think the two goalposts posts right now are for a a clarification of that. But I think that Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor um, and carrying along Justice Kagan, uh, if they had their way, uh, they would inject uh, race uh, into the predominant place uh, in the analysis. Uh, I mean, is is there that's
0: the question that I had that centered around all of this is is uh, on this question of whether Alabama was arguing for a clarification or a rewrite of this, isn't,
2: isn't it just the
0: case that step one of Jingles almost of necessity makes race predominate in in this inquiry? If you're asking whether can we draw a district that includes a majority of members of racial minority groups, you know, I I it's just it's hard to imagine an interpretation of the Section two language that does what Alabama is asking here, Un- unless you were to say, uh, use the constitutional avoidance canon or something like that and say we have to adopt a kind of counterintuitive reading of the text just to avoid the possibility of considering race in an unconstitutional
2: manner. I, th- I, th- I think that isn't that what Justice O'Connor sort of warned of? um you know, that this would all sort of all collapse into uh a race um predominant analysis. Uh so I, I take your point. I I that's why it was a little difficult. That that issue was bubbling you know right at the surface. Uh and they didn't get around to really pressing on it until I think it was in the rebuttal. Um and I you know I, I don't know if they really got an answer Um, I mean, they got an answer that, uh, Alabama was looking for, for clarification. I'm not sure they got a clear answer of what that clarification is.
0: Well, that's the, I I wondered the, what I was wondering was whether that was just a a kind of litigation strategy, that if you ask for clarification, you're more likely to get it than, uh, this case that's, uh, that's 35 years old. Um, but when, when I was looking at the, The potential implications of this decision, that's what it seemed to me that if Alabama wins, this is likely to be a major case, whereas if the challengers win, it may not be quite so major because the only way for Alabama to win this case is for the, the prevailing understanding of Jingles to undergo a fairly significant shift, whatever label you put on it.
2: Yeah, and I, I remember seeing some commentary in the early stages of this case where people were arguing for jettisoning jingles, but that was seemed to be a bridge too far. Um, and I think maybe that's why this, it was settled on. Let's let's try to get some clarification. But um, yeah, I, I agree. I think if if the um, if the lower court decision stands, it's kind of a big nothing. Uh, but if it if Alabama wins, then we're looking at a fairly—I uh, mean, probably a regime that you could have forecast uh, in the law, but certainly something different than what exists now. Now, one other thing that I'll,
0: I'll ask you about that seemed to be bothering the liberal justices was: if we adopt Alabama's view, the call it the clarification, do we, in essence? undermine Congress's 1982 amendment. That is that the point of the 1982 amendment was to get rid of the intent test that was and remains in the 15th amendment. And that was in section two of the Voting Rights Act until the court decided Mobile versus Bolden. And then Congress amended section two in 1982 and replaced this intent test with A results test. Um, and the, the liberal justices were saying that what Alabama is trying to do with its interpretation of the new section two is to revise the, revive the meaning of the pre 1982, um, voting rights act. Do you think that that's, uh, uh, an appropriate criticism or is there some kind of middle ground there?
2: I I think that's an, a, a criticism, um, that leaves out an important sort of distinction, Um, taking it from Alabama's position, Alabama's position or argument would be that all they have to do is prove that their map was reasonable under the conditions of the other things of that you analyze, whether geographically compact, Um, Communities of interest, you know, not bizarre lines and and things like that. The prior districts, the pre-existing districts um, and all of those things. Um, And if uh, if the argument is from the liberal justices that you have to. uh, Jump to rather than you by doing that. Um, You're getting to an intent standard uh, or an intent analysis, which is not, you know, which is what was rejected uh, in the 1982 amendments. I, I think that I think that flips it on its head because the argument from the liberal justices really is you've got to consider race, you know, more than you're considering it. And that's what the 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 challengers here did. Uh, If you look at the record below, there's a lot of testimony about um, and one of the experts actually said, you know, the the main input that they had in their statistical analysis to produce these maps was race was the main consideration. And that's, you know, that's what the liberal justices are arguing for. So it really is. okay. well, you're saying that the effect is. Uh, Racial discrimination or is the is the effect a result based on racial considerations and that you know so that argument I think while superficially it seems to make sense I think when you dig a little bit deeper and scratch scratch you know scratch on it a little bit um, it actually proves the weakness in that argument because if you get if you follow their what they want in the end result. Um, the only way they can get there, and this is this would be Alabama's argument, is that you use race uh, as a controlling factor. I, I, hope, I, I know that probably didn't make a lot of sense, um, but, um, you know, I think that uh, if the liberal justice's arguments take into its logical conclusion, that's what you end up with.
0: There's also a flip side of that argument that the, the liberals criticize the the conservatives uh, or criticize Alabama and say that you are seeking to undermine the purpose of the 1982 amendments. Um, But the argument in reverse, it seems to me, is that if the liberal interpretation carries the day, if the challengers to this districting scheme win this case, then basically the interpretation of of, of section two that carries the day is if we can draw a district to bring about proportionality based on racial demographics, then we have to. And the court has not to this point been willing to say quite that much, but.
2: In fact, I think what we mean by sufficiently
0: large and geographically compact is, well, we can use computers and draw districts that literally span the entire width of the state to loop in whatever black communities we can find. then uh, that interpretation does go fairly far, does it? Not into creating a right to proportional representation.
2: Yeah, it does. And one of the things that one of the things that jumped out at me, nobody actually said it, but when they were talking about the the inputs, I mean, Justice Thomas opened up with the question, what's your comparator? um but when you when they started talking about the computer simulations there was some discussion about the inputs but the old adage about garbage in garbage out you know if you're using a computer simulation for anything um you can control the results based on the inputs um and if you interject as one of the experts in the case for, i think it was for the caster uh parties uh did used race as you know, a key factor, then you can get into all of this proportional representation uh, results. Um, and whether that's, you know, if if that's sort of where the liberal justices are going, it's inconsistent with the, the case law that's developed since the 1982 Voting Rights Act was enacted or the amendments were enacted and certainly inconsistent with the post-Jingle's development of the law uh, even with its confusion
0: now on the this one of the questions in the question and answer box is uh directing us to this kind of thing but um if we get into the, the predicting votes uh, I suppose we should talk about that a bit even if we're we give the usual caveats that uh, as as you know, you show me somebody who's willing to predict what the Supreme Court's going to decide, and, and I'll show you a guy who's going to lose a lot of money buying the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, but it, it certainly seemed, and if we if we look at, at past cases, it seems like uh, from this argument that Justice Alito was um, uh, pretty willing to support Alabama's claims. Um, whereas the, the three liberals seem a solid vote on that side. Uh, Thomas largely silent, but his his prior writings make fairly clear what he's going to to do. Roberts, um, to some extent, well, Gorsuch is also silent, so he's a bit of a a, a, a wild card. Roberts uh, didn't say all that much. Kavanaugh spoke, but was equivocal. So uh, any any uh, any expectation about what we're going to see from from those three, who are going to decide which way the court comes out on this? Gorsuch, Roberts, and Kavanaugh.
2: Well, I, I and I think one of the interesting um, parts of the oral argument was uh, Justice Barrett because um, she really sought to understand sort of Alabama's argument, and she pressed Alabama on that. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's a really interesting mix because I think, you know, with, you know, Justice Thomas's prior writings and, and you've got Justice Alito um, and I. Th- I'm going to take, a, you know, Justice Gorsuch is a bit of a wild card, I think. Um, but I think those three you could set off to one side, you'd set the three liberal justices off to the other side. Um, I got the sense that, you know, if if. Justice Roberts uh, writes the opinion, um, you know, he'll have Kavanaugh and Barrett there and it'll be a uh, less sweeping opinion than maybe Alito and, um, and Thomas would want. Um, but that's kind of how I see it lining up. I, 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 I tend to give Alabama the upper hand here. Um, but You know, again, like you said, it's, you know, you lose a lot of money betting the house on uh, on how how the court's going to come out on this.
0: And a a final point on on the predictions or what we can gather from what we know already. Um, In general, of course, when the court stays a lower court order, you would expect that to be a pretty good indication that the court thinks that reversal is likely. And so just based on the court's decision over the summer to stay the district court order, or um, it wasn't the summer, I think it was February, um, the decision to stay the lower court's order, you might say, well, the smart money's going to be on Alabama here. But a couple of justices wrote explicitly to say that presumption isn't as strong in election cases because we really are nervous about district court orders that that alter election rules in the the time before an election. And although February seems like an awful long time before, before an election in November, it wasn't a lot of time, it was about two months before the primary election was scheduled. And of course, it, candidates need to campaign, and voters need to know who they're voting for. You need to establish districts uh, before those primaries occur. And, and so, even elections election and registrars
2: need to be able to do their jobs too.
0: That's that's right. That's right. And so, um, so Kavanaugh, in particular, in an opinion that was interestingly joined by Alito, um, says, I, "I'm not taking a stand. This is not a decision on the merits, and um, uh, and, and I'm." I'm voting to stay this lower court order, mostly on the basis of the Purcell principle, right. this idea that we're not going to uh, allow courts particularly, well, we're not gonna allow federal courts to uh, alter state election rules in the, the time right before an election. So I think that that predicting the outcome, uh, given this stay is a little more difficult than it might be in, in most cases that have a similar procedural context.
2: Do you think um, based on uh, Justice Roberts, you know, the way he, you know, he split the baby, so to speak, do you think, you know, that gives any indication that he may take the lead on this if if he's in the majority? Uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, I I would I would be inclined to think that that would be likely, but I'm but um, the the next month, just in in a couple of weeks the Supreme Court's going to take up the affirmative action case.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I, I don't know whether he's going to want to take both of those blockbuster cases decided within a month of each other, or whether one would be passed off to someone else. I think I'm, I would be, I would be shocked if Alito got an assignment in another high profile case right away after having written the, the Dobbs decision. Um, and if I were, if I were Roberts and had to choose between the affirmative action case and this one, I, I'm, I'm not sure which one I'd take. He seems to have demonstrated an interest in both of those areas of the law, uh, and the property rights case that was argued yesterday is also a high profile case, and Roberts has written on that subject as well. Um, so I. I, I but but directly to your point I think uh I think that point is well taken that um he he does seem to like to craft middle of the road kinds of opinions particularly if he can get uh five votes on on that side and if he does find himself in the middle and able to craft an opinion he uh, uh it would make sense for for him to take it
2: because he seemed to suggest that, you know, he, he he agrees that there's room for clarification and that wouldn't, depending on how he wrote the opinion, it wouldn't necessarily be a big sea change. Um, it could just be, you know, sort of cl- clearing up some things on the edges um, to refine the 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 analysis and framework for future cases. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the big blockbuster decision. Well and that would be the real the the real interesting thing for going forward
0: um, uh, is whether it would be just a cleaning up around the edges or whether that would just be what it would be sold as that Roberts would write it as an opinion that's just cleaning up the edges but that would really make a more substantial underlying change now the dissent i think is fairly clear that they're they're going to um Go to the mat on this one and characterize any any decision in Alabama's favor as um, as um, as being quite a, a substantial change from the way that things were, um, and from the what they view as the uh, proper interpretation of Section Two. So I don't think he's going to be able to craft a decision that's going to bring along the court in any kind of of uh, unified way, but he might be able to get one that uh, that by not reaching out to make an overtly large claim about changing the law might be able to accomplish something along those lines and and get an interpretation of section two that does place more of a cap on the extent to which race can be used to to create these majority minority districts under section two.
2: And how do you think the dissent would do you think the dissent would be sort of the full throated argument that justice jackson uh you know raised with regard to the 14th and 15th amendment framing it that way cuz i think that would be a uh, that seems to me as a is a pretty big um shift in in sort of the thinking uh in that regard i, I i'm going fairly far out on a limb on this one
0: <laughs> which will either look really good or really bad in another nine months. Um, But I I view Justice Jackson's uh, argument to that effect to be a kind of warm-up for next month, that I think that her discussion of the real meaning of the 14th Amendment or that that it's perfectly fine to be race-conscious in in imposing remedies to make up for past instances of discrimination, I think that's a a warm-up for the affirmative action cases. That are are going to be decided at the next court sitting. Um, this one, I think, is going to be full throated, but um, but I think the principal dissent probably would be less focused on that and uh, and more on the here is another blow to the Voting Rights Act that I, I think Kagan, in her questioning today, laid out the. Uh, the approach that a dissent is likely to take, or at least rhetorically going to take, that you gutted the Voting Rights Act in Section Five in Shelby County, you did the same thing in Brnovich last year, and now you're doing it again here, and and all of these um, these election related cases, particularly um, involving efforts to protect minority voting rights, are are being hacked to death by this conservative court. I think that's going to be the the, the rhetoric that starts with the now if it's if it's a dissent, like you said, it could be could well be the majority opinion, but it's the what the uh, the liberal wing of the court is going to push. And I think that that's going to be consistent, certainly with the political attacks on the court that we have seen recently.
2: And that was kind of, that was the thrust of Justice Kagan's questioning uh, as distinct from where Justice Jackson went and, and where Justice Sotomayor was going. Um, so yeah, that's that's point well taken. Does, was there anything else that struck you? I mean, I what struck me was the uh, was Justice Jackson's argument about the fourteenth, the meanings uh, and history of the fourteenth and fifteenth amendment. Um, maybe maybe struck me so hard that it, you know maybe I missed something else. Um, but uh, was there anything else that stood out for you? Well, sort of by its absence that one of the when I.
0: When I consider the uh, the Constitution and the constitutionality of Section Two, the um, it's ever since the the results test was put into Section Two, it's been an uneasy fit with the Fifteenth Amendment. That is, we're going to we're going to write the, the constitutional standard still is. Yet you're not violating the Constitution unless you intentionally discriminate against a racial group. And Congress decides that we are going to enforce that prohibition by not only making it illegal intentionally to discriminate against a minority group, but to impose any kind of electoral practice that has the effect of giving this racial minority group a reduced ability to impact the political process, and so that the the scope of Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment or the scope of Section Two of the Fifteenth Amendment was um, I don't even know if it was mentioned at all. It was certainly was not uh, a a major focus of of this case, and I I I, ex- I didn't expect it to be the focus because it's it would be an, a it would be a, a step quite far, if not a step too far. Um, but I expected it to get a little more attention than it than it did, that the interpretation of, of Section 2 brought about after the amendment to add the results tests brings it in potential conflict with City of Bernie versus Flores and those other uh, cases that place a limit on Congress's ability to expand constitutional rights under the guise of enforcing constitutional rights.
2: And how does you, knowing that the affirmative action cases are, is coming up next month, how do you, is there anything we can glean from what, other than, you know, the justice Jackson's sort of argument, is there anything we can glean from today's argument that is probably going to show up again? Well, I, I, that's, that's a fascinating question too. I, when I saw
0: that both of these cases had been granted cert and that they were going to be heard in the same term, I had thought, boy, there is a possibility that the court could take a really clear stand and say that the constitution outlaws consideration of race in both contexts, but just say that districting needs to be done Without consideration of race or it, even if that's not uh, realistic, at least to say something fairly clear to limit the amount of, of consideration of race that would be constitutional and then say something comparable in the affirmative action cases to say that it would be unconstitutional to consider uh, race more or less at all in admissions at state universities and for uh, state hiring decisions and that kind of thing. Given that that wasn't where the discussion today was, I'm not sure that we're likely to get as much of a um, a, a full throated, clear, no consideration of race rule out of the affirmative action cases, um, and if the court now that's. may or may not play out that kind of way, you could certainly draw a a distinction between the two and say, as the court has until this point, that people who draw district lines, of course, they're aware of race. If you say that they can't consider race, you're just being Pollyannish, you're being a fool. of course, they're gonna consider race. The only question is how much they're gonna consider race. Whereas in the more typical affirmative action contexts of school admissions and hiring decisions, it is plausible to create a rule that says you have to make those decisions on a race-blind kind of approach. So maybe the court would go that kind of direction. But I think the chances that the court would um would completely outlaw consideration of of race. Um I, I think that's that's to the extent it, it ever was a real consideration or a possibility, I think it's less of one
2: now. Did what did you make of uh, I think it was Justice Sotomayor's, uh, uh, I guess, lack of credence that she gave to Alabama's argument uh, about the sort of the geography um, when they were talking about the black belt um, that you know seemed to make you know, it seems to make sense. You've got a river. Uh, you've got a couple of bodies of water that separate uh, separate areas when you're talking about. Uh, you know, communities of interest and and geographic compactness, Uh, you know, physical boundaries have always been something that have been considered uh, in in the analysis. But she really she she really didn't give that much credence.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. I um, now that does, I suppose, have the advantage of clarity that we we know where Justice Sotomayor stands on those kinds of issues that um, uh, for her, race must predominate. Uh, the The Voting Rights Act requires that you draw um, districts to to protect these racial interests. Whenever it's possible to draw a district that includes a majority of members of a minority group, whether you uh, cross a river or a mountain range or or whatever, uh, doesn't really care. And um, now that that's also nothing all that new, even in Reynolds versus Sims back in the mid 60s, the court has this funny line about how now that we're in modern times and we have these communications technologies that allow us to cross rivers and (laughs) that that we don't have to worry about those natural boundaries as much anymore. Um, But I I think it's fairly clear that that Sotomayor would not, would look at that as an excuse that Alabama is, is glomming on to, um, to a river or a mountain as a as a a neutral sounding reason for not providing blacks with adequate voting rights. And she more or less said that explicitly um, in in her uh, discussion of Alabama's justification of communities of interest, when Alabama said that the, we don't wanna break up the community around the Gulf Coast region, we don't wanna break up the current, uh, district one and district two in order to split them and form this this new wide band of a new district two um Sotomayor basically said you, know, you can say it stems from uh, French and Spanish ancestry over hundreds of years but she pretty much scoffed at that uh, at that explanation or or said that it was um you know a way of doing racial discrimination without coming out and saying it
2: and they also uh I think it was as Justice Sotomayor and, and Justice Kagan when uh Alabama, uh, the Solicitor General pointed out, you know, that look, th- their map had some relation to the pre-existing districts. Um, and that that you know is one of the traditional districting principles that's considered. They glossed right over that, ignored, seemed to ignore that. Um uh, i think that's kind of the same you know as you mentioned how they uh, they ignored the geographic uh issues um they they treated it sort of the same way which leads the inescapable conclusion that the argument from their perspective is really race you know has to be a controlling factor uh in in the analysis that they would uh that they would uh put forth i want to bring up in
0: um, related to this discussion too, Professor Blumstein's comment in the, the question and answer, he, he says, um, if section two is a test for race discrimination rather than as a prophylactic for the purpose of, of discovering race discrimination, uh, does section two fall outside the congressional enforcement power under Bernie given the constitutional test of purposeful discrimination in Bolden and Shaw versus Reno? Um, I I don't think so. I think that the I think Bernie says that the um, that the congruence and proportionality test tries to to determine whether the congressional statute is congruent and proportional to the scope of a constitutional right as the court interprets that constitutional right uh, and and wouldn't let Congress use Section Two as a test for uh, purposeful discrimination but it does seem to be where Justice Jackson's coming from. The, the, several of Justice Jackson's comments seem to indicate that she views section two as a test for racial discrimination um, rather than as, um, as just some, like, like uh, Professor says, as a, um, a prophylactic means of discovering when there might be race discrimination somewhere lurking in the background. Um, so, so my answer is no, but I think that I would, um, that that would, would not universally be accepted at the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, I think that I, I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's, I think that's where Justice Jackson sort of out over, over the, uh, over the surfboard a little bit. Uh,
0: the, the last so far the last question on the question and answer is could a legislature decline to establish districts but require at large elections for the US House the answer to that question is yes as a constitutional matter but no as a as a statutory matter because there is a there is a federal statute requiring that congressional districts be single member districts and um and under the constitution the states have the the first responsibility for deciding the times, places, and manner of congressional elections, but those are subject to uh, to Congress making or amending any such laws. And Congress has decided that all districts are going to be single member. Um, so, so unless you're unless you're Rhode Island or Delaware, one of those states that only has one uh, member of the House of Representatives, you have to have single member districts.
2: And do we have any other questions? Let's see.
0: Ryan, is there anything that came uh, your way that you uh, particularly want to raise?
1: Um, I, I think you covered, covered a lot of it. Um, the big question I had is what what this kind of predicted for SFFA versus Harvard, which you went into, Mike. And I was curious why you thought Gorsuch was so silent during the, the, the arguments today. I was, I. I don't know. I, I'm I um I suspect
0: that that he just he, he knew what his answer was going to be and didn't think that it was going to be all that. For the same reason that Justice Thomas has said that he's silent, I'm not going to take up other people's time trying to convince the other members of the court when you know, I, when I know what I'm what I already think about the case. Um but I don't know whether that's true. Gorsuch was quite an active questioner in, uh, in the case on the on the meaning of Title VII, a sex discrimination cases, including sexual orientation and transgender discrimination. Um, and so his, uh, uh, a noteworthy case that he, where he interpreted a statute passed in the same era as the Voting Rights Act was passed and, and, um, uh, so I, I don't. I was kind of surprised that he didn't follow suit there, and 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 was an active questioner. I don't. Uh, I don't know that it says anything, but I, I kind of suspect that it means that we probably don't have a big surprise coming from him. I think that um, that that if he were thinking something uh, unexpected, that I would have expected to hear more from him in oral argument. But that's just my seat of the pants kind of uh, of of thought. I don't know that it, that it has any, um reflection of what he's actually thinking.
2: David? Uh, I don't either. I mean, sometimes they're sphinx-like uh, and, and um, the silence, uh, you, uh, you can read it either way. Uh, so I, I don't know. I was, I was surprised that he didn't, uh, didn't ask any questions. I don't think he asked a single question, did he? I didn't hear him at all. Yeah. And,
1: with this being uh, Justice Jackson's second day on the court, what do you what do you predict for her tenure on 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 the court so far, based on the two brief days she's been active?
0: Well,
2: I, I as I mentioned before, I, I was struck by her forceful argument for uh, the interpretation that she put forward for the Fourteenth or Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment, uh, and how that should should apply in this case. Um, and, you know, that if if that holds true, I think she's going to be quite active um, uh, in in arguing from, you know, the the more liberal side of the court uh, for a completely different reading uh, than what has been, uh, you know, uh, coming out of the conservative wing of the court. I mean, she I think so. I think she's going to be very active and very vocal uh uh justice I mean in the second day she you know in uh, yesterday she was very active in questioning uh and today uh she was you know I think justice Todd Thomas asked one question and then she took over uh so she's very active.
0: I think it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the court reacts to that if she does continue with that technique, whether the conservative wing on the court will feel compelled to to speak up to and, um, uh, or, uh, or whether some effort will be made to say that, um, you know, well, like the, during the pandemic that everybody gets two minutes or the five minutes or however much it was, and we're just going to rotate through the bench. Um, Justice Scalia, when he joined the court in 86, got some of the same kind of uh, of of write ups about him that he was he was coming from the D.C. Circuit like Justice Jackson was coming from the D.C. Circuit had a very um, uh, uh, active approach to oral argument that fit his personality um, and some of the members of the court didn't appreciate it I think it was Justice Blackman who made some kind of of remark about how you know, back in my day, we all, you know, we sat and respected the people who had been here for a few years before we uh, became as active as Justice Scalia was. Um, and, and I, I always thought that was kind of you know a bit bit fusty. That there, there there wasn't much of a, a need for that kind of, of deference. So in, in that respect, I'm I'm pleased that Justice Jackson is is jumping right into um to be an active questioner. It certainly is helpful to court observers and, I imagine, to advocates to know where she's coming from. And um, we don't have to guess about her position like we have to guess about Gorsuch because uh, the, their approaches were so, so different. But I, I think it will be really fascinating to um, to to see whether she maintains uh, that kind of attitude in the future or, or um, how her behavior on the bench
2: changes if- as this term goes on and her tenure on the court goes on. And if I recall correctly, uh, Justice Sotomayor was pretty active very early on in her tenure as well. So I think that's I think it's a a, a generational kind of shift that that
0: the uh, Justice Blackman joins the court in 1969 or 70. Um, I just think it's a completely different era from from the 80s and certainly from now that um, the justices, they might decide, like Justice Thomas, not to say much during oral argument at all, but I don't think that many new appointees are going to um, to exhibit a kind of, you know, I better not speak up and I better defer to the people who've been on the court for 10 years when I'm just starting out. I, I just don't think that that's an attitude that's likely to be reflected by more of the, the appointees in this current generation.
2: And despite his silence today, I know there was some criticism of Justice Gorsuch early in his tenure for um, his active participation. Yeah, okay. yeah I, like I think it. you're right uh, on that. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, a couple of minutes left. Do either of you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up?
2: uh as always uh watching the court do its work is fascinating. I was also struck by how um how covid has actually changed the way oral arguments are conducted uh it seems to me that uh it's it's much more of a uh you know when they were doing the remote arguments where they were going in order and asking the justices if they have any any questions uh justice Roberts has has continued to do that even though it's um uh it's no longer you know covid rules um I, so i thought that was just from a, a court observer perspective uh interesting how that has sort of baked its way into oral argument today uh or or now and the the fact that uh counsel can actually get sort of their opening uh argument out uh with, before getting bombarded with questions uh, that seems to be a little bit of a different uh, approach to uh, the conduct of oral arguments.
0: And I just want to thank uh, David and you, Ryan, and the, the Federalist Society and all the attendees for the opportunity to take part in this. It's It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society, I would like to thank our speakers for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us and participating, particularly with your questions. We welcome listener feedback at email at info at And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for information and announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.